Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. I'm Royfield Brown, who's not in my beloved East Bay in California at the moment. I'm actually in Burlington, Southern Ontario, Greater Toronto, looking after uh, my son. I'm here looking out the window. The sun is out, the sky is blue. And we have Soledad O'Brien, um, or shall we say Maria de la Soledad Teresa O'Brien, who's an American broadcast journalist who's worked for, amongst others, CNN, Al Jazeera America, HBO, NBC and MSNBC. She now runs Starfish Media Group and she anchors and produces The Matter of Fact, which is a, a political uh, magazine program. And she has hosted and produced the widely acclaimed In America documentary series, which included Black in America and Latino in America. I want to read you a passage of an essay printed in the New York Times magazine, a story of a young black girl growing up on the black side of an Iowa town. At the edge of our lawn, high on an aluminum pole, soared the flag, which my dad would replace as soon as it showed the slightest tatter. That little girl grew up to be a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, writing about America's racial divide and issues of racial justice, in the process creating the acclaimed New York Times 1619 Project. I'm talking about Nicole Hannah-Jones. You write about your dad flying that flag, and you talk about the duality, right? That he's in Mississippi, which has this, this track record of terrible violence against black people, but also that he loves America. <laughs> I mean, my father was like generations of black people who uh, believed that service to their country was how they could finally get treated and recognized as full citizens. Solidad, you grew up in Smithtown, a white town in Long Island, New York, and you have this mixed race heritage. Your mother is Afro-Cuban and your father is an Irish-Australian. I can only but imagine uh, what type of music uh, was played in the O'Brien household growing up. So what's your jam? What do you dance to now? Oh, my gosh. So what my jam is and mm-hmm. what kind of music was played in my household are two extremely different things. Um, I had older sisters, so I think they really dictated kind of the 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 musical taste of the family. And it was arranged, right? I had sisters who loved Earth, Wind & Fire, and I had sisters we Mount. I'm sure I'm too old for half the people in this room because there was a song called Billy Don't Be a Hero. Do you remember that song? I absolutely do. Uh, right. And like that was a big Come deal. back and make me your wife. I exactly. Elton yeah. John mm-hmm. uh, was huge. So obviously Elton John. And so and I had a sister who was very into country music. So Charlie Pride uh, and never, you know, in Long Island generally when I was growing up. So my classmates at the time in the 80s, 
or listening to Rush and like heavy metal, uh, but I was not. I personally listened to Luther Vandross, who's kind of my all time favorite. My dad loved Dionne Warwick. And when I got to run into her the first time, I got to tell her like, oh, my God, my father loves you. Um, but it was just, you know, we I grew up in a very loud and busy family, six kids, two parents. And so there was no sense of like, there's one record player and there's this, you know, one thing that emanates. We argued over TV shows to watch. We argued over what to listen to. We argued over everything. It was a very kind of raucous household. I can only but imagine how difficult or confusing or complex your childhood would have, be, would have been um, because you grew up not only in this majority uh, white town, but also to this kind of biracial uh, family. Um, speak to that for us and, and speak to, uh, dare I say, it, the bravery of your parents loving each other in a time in America, which was going through massive racial strife and of which um, biracial couples were just were not the norm. Yeah, I, I don't know that they themselves, uh, and my parents both passed away a couple of years ago, I don't know that they themselves would call it bravery. I think there's a lot of um, just lack of kind of knowing what's coming down the pike. When you come from a different country, you'd probably be a good uh, person to ask about this. I You know, I don't think they fully understand how Americans and America thought about race. Um, my parents used to tell me the story of how they met and they talked about they went to this restaurant and tried to get seated together, right? When everybody would, in it was in uh, Maryland, in Baltimore uh, in 1958, right? So everybody in Baltimore would know that that's not a thing. <laughs> you can't do that. And I think they were kind of naive, right? They kept going to restaurant after restaurant on their first date to figure out where they could eat together. And that obviously was not going to happen. And so I think they had a lot of naivete. I also think my parents, when they kind of did figure it out, their strategy was very much like we're in a good community with good schools. Put your head down. You know, it's very 19. My mom was born in 1930. My dad in 1933. Right. So it was a very 1930s kind of you put your head down. You get done what you need to get done and you get out. But, 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 I, 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 but I think that's really fascinating because what your parents absolutely didn't do was to put their head down. And, and, and I'm going to just read something which um, you've got on your Twitter, which um, shows that your parents might have said, solid dad, and to your siblings, put your head down. But, but they didn't. And your mother most definitely didn't. Um, yeah. So he says, when your mother died uh, recently, you found this letter to an editor amongst her possessions. She's calling out John Clean, the town supervisor of Smithtown, uh, Long Island, for his racist housing policies. Um, I th And you say you think it's from the 1970s. It inspired mm -hmm. me to name names and to call out bullshit and don't be afraid. So this is what she posted to uh, the local newspaper to supervisor John Clean and the Smithsonian board. Let this ad convey to you and to the people of Smithtown Township the disgust and frustration felt by this member of the Negro community at your refusal to enact an open housing ordinance. Every honest person knows that there is discrimination in the sale and the rental of houses in this township. With your denial of an open housing ordinance, you have made light of our uh, uh, right and belittled our dignity. In this crucial moment in American history, you have aligned yourselves uh, with those who would oppress the Negro. Know then that you uh, bear this moral burden. That's not 
the letter is somebody who wants to lie down. Yeah, no, I think that that's very true. My mother was definitely considered to be a raging pain in the ass by a lot of people. Uh, and, 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 and if you knew the community at the time to say, understand that you bear this moral burden to a bunch of white people in Long Island who did not give a fuck, I would have to tell you. Uh, it's kind of like banging your head against the wall. No, and I guess I don't think it's a, a maybe lying down might be the wrong way to, to say that. It's much more of a figure out what you're trying to get to. Right. Like put your head down and get done what you need to get done and go to the next thing that you need to get done. So I think for my parents, they thought we're in a good community. The public schools are good. And so you need to be successful here. And if you are not dating, which none of us really were, uh, if you don't necessarily feel like you fit in, then, you know, when you go to college, like put your head down and get the stuff dealt in because then you get to go to the next thing. And I think that that might be a more apt uh, description of what they were thinking about. Are you more like your mom or your dad? Uh, my dad was a very quiet person, so I'm much more like my mom, I think. My dad was one of those people who was very willing to let my mom um, kind of take the lead. He fully supported everything she was doing, but but he kind of stayed in the background. Right. Let's move on. So we've got the, the setup of your family, which I think is utterly kind of like wonderful because you sit at the intersection, I think, of America, you know, you are black, you are white, you are Latino, uh, you know, so we have that. Why did you become a journalist? Why did you want to go into the media? You know, I really liked the opportunity to tell stories is how I thought about it when I first started. I was pre-med in college and I decided not to go to med school. And I took a job at a TV news station, which was essentially like picking staples out of the wall and and, and running scripts and getting people lunch and coffee. But what I really liked about the potential opportunity was in telling stories, right? In in being able to say, boy, here's something people don't know about, you know, or let me let me hop under this police line and and get in to, to tell the story. And I, I love that kind of access as I became a reporter. And so that for me was very interesting. And I think as I got older, especially when I was working at CNN, I love the idea of parachuting into a place, whether it was overseas or, let's say, New Orleans uh, during Hurricane Katrina, and say, you know, let me tell you what is happening as as chaos is unfolding. I'll be the one who can who can tell you what's really going on. And and I think understanding that there was a whole point of view that was often missed in the news. That there were a lot of people, usually people of color, who didn't really get much of a platform when it came to the news. I'll give you an example. I covered a covered a tornado in, I think it was Alabama. And we were focused on this one, you know, in tornadoes in Alabama, often um, uh, trailer parks just get decimated, right? For some reason, uh, you know, the, just, the, the, the tornadoes just ripped through the trailer park, always seemed to be right on the path, you know, and and, and they damage it. So we were there covering a, tor- uh, a trailer park that had just been blown apart. And someone walked up to me and said that they lived in a trailer park a couple of miles away and that they had walked because they had seen our show on TV and they wanted me to know that there was another trailer park that wasn't getting the coverage. The reason we couldn't get to that one and why we chose the one we were at, it was just the roads weren't blocked. The road to their trailer park was blocked, right? And you can see how your story is told or not told, kind of just depending on how easy it is for the media to get to you. (laughs) And that was really, really true. And so I, I've always sort of thought about that in terms of 
you know, what allows you to tell a story? What allows you to get into certain communities? Do you feel like you have access to them? Do you know the story? Do you speak the language? Because if you don't speak the language, there's probably a pretty good chance you're not going to do a very good job telling that story. And that, I think, allowed me to think about, well, you know, how do we get to some of these voices that often don't get a platform? Let's like stay on that early part of your career. It's the late 80s to the mid 90s. One of the kind of fascinating anecdotes for me is you told a story about working for KRON in, in San Francisco and you see that your colleagues are having this discussion, a lively conversation, and you wanted to jump in. And then you discover that they're talking about the affirmative action hire. So they were talking about you saying that you uh, probably did not deserve your place uh, there, even though you've gone to Harvard. Tell us about that moment. Oh, my gosh. I think so many people have this moment. <laughs> you know, I was new at Cron and I was also new to the West Coast. I came with three like duffel bags of my stuff and moved into an apartment. And I was also woefully underpaid. I was getting paid, I think, $30,000 a year as a reporter. The average was about 90, right? So I was literally getting a third because I worked four days a week. And I remember I was walking down the hall and... Um, and a bunch of people were talking, you know, and I, you know, you see people talking and you're new and you're like, hey, <laughs> awkward because I'm new. <laughs> and I just remember it kind of, it's sort of the equivalent of when everybody stops talking when they see you and you're like, oh, I must have been the topic of conversation. It was very similar to that. And I just remember I could overhear them talking about, the, you know, as I pulled, as I kind of walked in, it, they were talking about the affirmative action hire. And then it sort of dawned on me because of all the awkward silences. Um, that, oh, oh, it's me. Oh, my goodness. We're talking about me, uh, which was awkward. But, you know, I think that that was a very uh, typical thing. And, you know, in my business, certainly, um, I think that that's something um, people love to feel like they can put you in their, your place and say you're not smart enough or you're not good enough. And um, and a lot of probably in general, but certainly in my business, you know, making sure that you get the opportunity so that you can prove yourself is really, really important. I don't know that I was the affirmative action candidate. <laughs> I, I uh, certainly was getting paid less than everybody else. And I had been a producer at NBC News. And so I probably had had more experience in some ways than a lot of other people, not as a reporter, certainly, but as somebody who was in news generally. Uh, and so I thought I had a lot to offer and also a lot to learn. I wasn't very good on air, certainly, when I started. Uh, you know, but it's not like doing neurosurgery. Break, break, break that down for me. What, what what does that actually mean, I wasn't very good on air? And, and, and tell, know, tell us about some of your fuck-ups. Yeah. Oh, gosh, there were so many. We could literally spend an hour just talking about my fuck-ups. Um, you know, I think uh, a lot of being good on camera is being comfortable. And I wasn't. I would have been a producer in NBC News, so I hadn't been on camera. Uh, I think a lot of being good on camera is having people feel like you're talking to them through the camera, which I was not good at. I had my very first live shot ever, which, by the way, they had told me that I would not go live um, until, you know, until I'd been there a few weeks. But within three days, I was doing a live shot from a, a, a bar because the, the San Francisco Giants had made it into the playoffs. I too lived in the East Bay. And um, and so I remember having to go live and I was just very, very nervous. But I, I did everything wrong in terms of, you know, we had this big um, light set up and, and it was kind of, you went with one photographer, so it wasn't like a lot of people with you. 
and I was at this bar and everybody's drinking and I'm reporting and interviewing people and they're drinking. And I didn't realize like you shouldn't have your setup so that people can be behind you. And so somebody, a guy reached over and kind of pinched me on the ass when when they came to me live, which sort of sent me into this like sputtering musk. You know, like that kind of stuff. That's just not good. That's just a lack of experience in doing stuff live. But, you know, reporting is certainly a learnable skill and you figure it out. And what you need to figure it out, honestly, is just a lot of opportunity, right? You need to get a chance to do it again and again and again, which I was very lucky. I got that at Cron, KRON TV in San Francisco, because we were the show. I did the show that was on before the Today Show. So I had I do four live shots every day. You know, and eventually you kind of figure it out. I uh, went on to become the East Bay Bureau Chief, and I loved it. I, I really liked um, the opportunity that I had to, you know, uh, sometimes we were telling stupid stories, but often we were telling important stories. And I was able to leverage that into um, a, uh, a a job at, what did I go after that? I think I went to NBC. Oh, NBC was starting uh, MSNBC at the time in 96. And so I went uh, to MSNBC in 1996 as the anchor of a of a tech show. And I think what made that work was that I was always very clear that I'm not an expert. I'm just an interviewer. I'm here to understand things um, like I'm a smart lady who reads stuff. And so, uh, you know, for me, that was a great opportunity to sort of break into cable and then be on my way to go to the network. I know that my good friend Dawn Fraser is, is about to catch a plane. Uh, but I'm going to ask one question, Dawn, and then it's going to be over over to you. Uh, we're going to break our order just for Dawn because she is in an airport. Um, Sonny, Dad, you've been a victim of, of, of colorism. And um, in some quarters, people have even questioned your heritage. Are you really black um, because of your appearance? Um do you think that your racial ambiguity played any kind of like guiding hand in, in the, at least in the start of your career? Sure, absolutely. I, I did a documentary, I was asked to be in a documentary called Light Girls, um, uh, which Bill Duke did, who's a genius. And, you know, and, and I think a lot of people had um, a lot of denial about the role that the color of their skin plays in opportunities they get. I mean, when I was starting as a TV news anchor, which was, I guess, or on air in general, which was 93 for me, you know, I mean, most of the anchors looked like me, Frederica Whitfield, Suzanne Malveaux. You know, we all could be like sisters. I mean, we were often mistaken for each other. You know, sometimes people come to me like, oh, my goodness, Suzanne Malveaux, can I have your autograph? And we used to joke, you know, I'd be like, sure you can. I write Suzanne Malveaux. <laughs> kind of like, I got you, girl. <laughs> I'll do that autograph for you. So clearly, right, there's this um, skin tone that, you know, people in charge, which is usually a middle-aged white dude, um, or at least all my bosses were, uh, who feels comfortable with that, right? Like diversity, but not not scary for them, not too challenging for them, not too, you know, it's not going to make them uncomfortable. And so I, I think that's a very clearly a reason why uh, a lot of people on air, um, especially black women, were sort of light-skinned black women. Um, and And you've seen times in which News organizations have had to hire more people of color because the story dictated it, that it wasn't some altruism. It wasn't that they suddenly realized that black journalists could be as amazing as any other journalist, that there was a story and white journalists were afraid to go into, say, South Central during the riots. And they, they actually needed black reporters. And so, uh, you know, that often moves the needle as opposed to 
um, you know, some kind of sense of understanding the quality of journalism or the the opportunity in having a very diverse team. I, I, I feel like there's still to this day um, a real um, lack of diversity in newsrooms and certainly not in just in front of the camera now. I think that's gotten a lot better. But in terms of who's making decisions, because as much as it's great if you're in front of the camera, the real decisions, frankly, are made behind the camera, right? They're they're made in the executive offices and in the executive team. And, and most of these newsrooms uh, are not really, really diverse. I mean, you have to really work at it. You have to be very intentional about it. Dawn, uh, this is your moment because I know uh, you, you're watching the clock. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Soledad, I actually had the opportunity to meet you many years ago. Um, with one of your producers from CNN, uh, Janelle Rodriguez. Um, um, and at that time, you had just released the, your book, Latino in America. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely amazing and inspirational. I'd just love to hear a little bit more about your perspective or thoughts on um, on what is um, the role of Latinos in upcoming politics, in your opinion. Oh, what a great question. When we did Latino in America for CNN, I think it was like 2009, maybe 2010, um, one thing that was so crazy was that there were not a whole hell of a lot of Latinos on that project. And it became kind of awkward. First of all, everyone would talk about, well, you know, they, being Latinos, they do this and they do that and they. And I was like, me and the producer, the other, the one other Latina on the project would say, we, <laughs> this is we. Uh, and that really was an indication of, you know, who's, again, who's who's going to control the narrative? What's the story that we're going to tell? Um, we actually had to get rid of the very first team because we started with a debate about our Puerto Ricans, Americans. And by the way, that is Googleable. You do not need to actually have a debate about it. You could just Google it. Uh, and I remember leaving that first meeting where we discussed this because it would change the numbers, right? Was it 48 million Americans or or 51 million Americans, I believe? And and I, I just was like, this is not the team to do this. And I, I walked from that conference room to the president of CNN's office and said, like, we need a new team. This is the stories that we're trying to do. This is not OK. Like, this is not good. One of the stories, in fact, was about me, you know, and Soledad. And it just was my name. And it was just so stupid. Right. Every so often you get to do a great project on something that people don't cover, mainly Latinos in America. Like as much as, you know, nobody loves me more than me. A hundred percent not. I am not the story. I don't want to do that. And and it's embarrassing and insulting, frankly. And so we had to kind of start from zero again. And um, and I think the organizing theme of that project became uh, that Garcia, the name Garcia, was the eighth most popular American name. And what did that mean in terms of politics, which was really the question? Uh, I think it's really interesting to see, because, of course, you know, many Latinos uh, think of themselves as white. And if you look at the data around, let's just use as an example, the number of Latinos who support Trump uh, is a really good indication, I think, of that population being open to, uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans and not necessarily and certainly shouldn't just be taken for granted by um, Democrats, which I think is often kind of the the, the slam on, on Democrats and the Latino population. So I do hope very much uh, as much as Stacey Abrams was able to bring a whole bunch of new people into voting generally, uh, I do I do think there's this great opportunity that this is a voting block that is willing and interested in being courted, that wants to be understood and 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 is open, you know, to go to whoever they feel likes them best and re- represents and reflects them the best. So I think 
it's certainly going to be a very powerful voting block, and it, it certainly can change the game. They're, they they don't uh, Latinos generally just don't vote in big enough numbers at this moment. They don't vote in the numbers that their total numbers would um, would allow. And but but one day they will, and that'll be huge. Um, let's move on to social media. Um, you've got 1.3 million followers um, on Twitter and on Instagram. You've got just under half a million and you're incredibly strident. You know, you, you call bullshit on just about everybody, whether it's um, Lou Dobbs, uh, Ben Shapiro, Tucker Carlson. And, and, and also you've even had a go at Rachel Maddow and Lawrence O'Donnell for pushing kind of Russian conspiracy theories. So so the so it's a two part question. Number one, are you an equal opportunity skeptic? And then the second part is, is it easier on social media to put the boot in, as we would say in England, um, into, you know, in your colleagues and to get media attention than actually being in front of the camera? Uh, you know, Certainly, it gets media attention, but I think media attention on that stuff is kind of irrelevant. It's certainly not why I've, I've ever done it. I don't. I don't care. I don't care how many followers I have on that stuff. It really doesn't matter to me. I tend to talk about the things that are interesting to me, and I think when I decided that that would be my strategy, that was very nice because you could just you just had to be honest with yourself. I, I think anybody who's full of shit should be called out, especially if they're committing bad journalism. And, and I, I, you know, certainly have talked about the failures that I've had when it comes to journalism. Um, I'd certainly, you know, I, I think there's many ways in which Fox News is horrific uh, in what they do. But, you know, let's just look at vaccines alone and some other things. Tucker Carlson could deserve his own hour on that conversation. But certainly other places, CNN's a good example, and I loved working at CNN, but they make a lot of mistakes and they have a, a standards and practices division that is not, you know, has been defanged, I think, to a large degree. And I don't think you do anybody a service by pretending that somehow, you know, that that's okay because I feel like I identify more with the kinds of stories they're telling. I don't think that's okay. I think that you should call out anybody who's failing you. And unfortunately, a but, lot of journalists. But the thing is, though, out. but the thing is, though, a, a lot of the media hasn't in in the last four years, isn't it? You know, because the goal of journalism is to hold people accountable uh, if they are empowered and to inform and to educate the public. Mm -hmm. So, is the media? Yeah. Did the media basically fail in its primary objective? During the I think we've year. moved off. Sure, yes, clearly. I mean, I think we have moved off as media, off of the idea of holding people in power accountable. And I think in many cases, we've moved into sucking up to people in power so we get access, so we can, you know, slide our way in and be the, you know, the reporter who tells you all the palace intrigue about what's happening. Um, you know, there's plenty of ways of reporting on issues and people and administrations without being besties with all of those people. And I think there are many organizations that truly, truly fail you. A good example uh, would be Politico, which I talk about a lot because I think Politico is terrible, um, frequently terrible. Uh, and, and, you know, when they have a headline that tells you that Ron DeSantis has Governor DeSantis of Florida has won the pandemic, that was a while back in the middle of the pandemic, it's so crazy. First of all, no one had won the pandemic then. Framing a win in a state, I live in the state of Florida much of the year, uh, 
a state that has actually done a lot to hide their actual COVID numbers. So the numbers are not super reliable anyway. And now we've seen they're in the middle of a terrible wave along with Texas. They're kind of leading the way in in COVID deaths. But I mean, imagine a headline that tells you that someone has won the pandemic. Like that's the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. It, it's just not good reporting uh, on on the pandemic. It's just not smart. And this idea, right, and a lot of it serves to suck up to the governor because that actually helps you, gives you good access. And if you get good access, and you see this all the time, there was, I think it was CBS the other day did a story about, oh, yes, they did a story on, you know, are some people are concerned that immigrants might be the reason for the rise in COVID numbers, which, by the way, has been debunked. This is CBS. I think it was on Good Morning America. And, um, you know, some people may have, you know, the immigrants migrants to the country may be responsible. And they quote Governor DeSantis again from the state of Florida, which, by the way, uh, is not seeing immigrants from the state from from uh, Mexico, who's got horrible COVID numbers. So he's certainly not a, an expert on that. And it just was ridiculous. It was absurd. I, I find those things. I love Good Morning America. I watch it all the time. But it, when it sucks, someone should say it sucks. And you're not holding people in power accountable. You are falling uh, prey to Republican talking points and sometimes Democratic talking points. And your job in reporting is to explain to people and give them the truth. There is no indication that migrants to this country are the reason for the outbreak of COVID. We know the reason. It's people who are unvaccinated. They are filling up emergency rooms and, and putting other Americans at risk. The idea that that's a story, and I get it, use the word may, you couch it in some people, that is not okay. That is shitty journalism. And I don't care if three people read it. I do not care. It's, uh, you know, no one's paying me money. I don't, I don't have to deliver an audience. I am mad about it. I am disappointed in it. And I'm going to talk about it. And if three people want to talk about it with me, great. And if it's 100 people, great. And if it's 8,000 people, also great. Well, you know what? We've got uh, 715 talking with you at the moment about it. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, when you started your career, you literally were the only person of color in the newsroom. And, that, and, and you've had to uh, maybe bite your tongue. No, oh, I, I, I wasn't. I'll correct you there. I wasn't. There was a great reporter, WBZ-TV. Uh, who was a legend, and I'm forgetting his name because I'm so bad at coming up with names at the last minute in Boston, and no he was worries. a reporter. I was a person who fetched his coffee. So, so no, I certainly wasn't the only person, but there were not a whole heck of a lot. But there's going to be a certain level of kind of, you know, you've got your way to this position, right? And then to then push back and to say that we need deeper reporting, more reporting. Let's not just use uh, people of colour as some kind of avatar. If there's a crime story, all of a sudden we, we, we zip down 
to uh, the pullback neighborhood type of thing. Um, that 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 must be difficult. Where fundamentally, uh, you want to also uh, advance your career. How has the newsroom changed in your twenty plus years of being um, part of it? In terms of the reporting of African-Americans and of uh, the, the, the Latino community. How has it visibly changed? I think it's changed in good ways in that a lot of the conversations that are happening needed to happen. It used to be that those conversations didn't happen at all or they happened among the five or six black employees. Uh, when I worked in Boston, I remember the Charles Stewart case, a very famous case. A guy claimed that a black man in Boston had climbed into the back of his car and shot his wife, who's pregnant, and um, and shot him as well. And his wife died, and their unborn child uh, did not survive. Uh, and there was a manhunt in Boston. This is my first job, where the police were looking for this, you know, rough description of the black dude who'd climbed into the back of the car. And one of the quotes that this guy had was that the the, the black guy who'd climbed into the car had said something like had had thought that the two of them were five thought they were the cops. And I remember the black employees at WBZ, um, and I'm sure elsewhere, were saying, like, that makes no sense. Like, that just, that that narrative didn't make sense. Well, it would turn out, if you Google Charles Stewart uh, in Boston uh, in the 1980s, um, it would turn, or early 90s, it would turn out that he shot his wife himself, and he would later commit suicide or someone threw him off a bridge in uh, in Boston. I think that that this idea of people being able to be in the meeting and saying there's something that doesn't ring true about this. That was happening kind of on the the outskirts of the what was happening in the morning meeting. And I think what's changed is that there are more conversations now about race, about how we think about telling stories, about point of view, about what is objective. For a long time, we would have said, listen, we're going to go interview the police chief because what the police tells us, you know, will tell us about this shooting you know, that is essentially the word of God. And we're going to quote them. You know, police officers tell us that just after five o'clock, John uh, Smith, you know, blah, 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 blah. Right. We, we we would use that as if they were writing our copy for us. And that was pretty typical. And I think now, certainly when it comes around race and even policing, people are much more willing to understand that the police are an active party in this conversation and this reporting and that everybody in the story needs to be uh, taken as a source whose credibility needs to be questioned. Uh, and so that's a big change as well. Um, there was a time when you would just, you know, just go with whatever the police told you. They were they were the credibility. That's changed a bit. And also, I think what's changed is conversations about point of view. Like, well, you see it this way, but what about the people in that actual community? <laughs> you know, maybe we should talk to some of them. You know, since since our story's on that community, wouldn't it be good to have somebody there uh, giving us some insight? And and so I think there have been some big changes, and I think you've had a lot of people, not always people of color, uh, a lot of white bosses who are really um, getting it. I was on a call the other day, a board I sit on, and the number of like white middle-aged dudes who were like, diversity is important to us, this matter, you know, they were jumping in. They were literally running with the ball. Normally, historically, that's been the Black people or the Latinos or the Asians in the meeting who have to say, well, let me raise this topic yet again about diversity. I'm glad to see white people running with that. That's good. 
My last question before I throw it out to uh, to the crowded stage that we have. You have a new program, Matter of Fact, and it deals with structural racism. There's going to be many people uh, listening to this podcast and there are a few people in this audience that are going to tell you categorically that America is not structurally racist. How well, do you tell them that they're, they're mistaken? They're just, yeah. Well, they're just wrong. I mean, literally, that's just, that's a person who says that is a person who does not understand the history of America and and where America is today. So, I mean, when someone says that to me, I, I, I have to be honest and I just kind of ignore that person because they're not really engaging you in a conversation. They, they're just clueless. And so it's not really worth talking to them. Solidad O'Brien, thank you for coming on and thank you for giving us an hour plus of your time. Uh, you've been a most excellent guest. Now, just before you go, there is one thing which I've started asking uh, of the guests on the show, which is, who should I speak to next? And can you help uh, and make that effective introduction? So who do you think? Yeah, you know who you should talk to? Do you know who Franklin Leonard is? Mm-hmm. He's done a lot of work and research into diversity, and it turns out he just joined a board that I'm on the other day, but he's a fantastic interview, and he's so smart and interesting. I highly recommend you chat with him. I mean, I certainly could help you, but I'm not sure it'll help help. Uh, he's a great guy. I think he'd be happy to do it. Fantastic. I will I will be uh, texting you uh, for his digits uh, later. Thank you, Solidad O'Brien, for joining us on the show today. Your insight and expertise in journalism and social justice has been incredibly valuable and we are grateful for your time. To all of our listeners, uh, welcome to the uh, show Brown People. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take time to leave us a review on your favourite podcast platform. Hopefully that is Apple Podcasts. Uh, your feedback helps us to continue bringing engaging and informative content from incredible guests just like Solidad. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.